we took a little break last week and we talked about the, the great celebration that we have to look forward to in Revelation 19. Um, but this morning we're going to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me just recap a little bit where we've, where we've been and uh, where we're at this morning. So Jesus starts out with the Beatitudes. He starts out with the character of those who've been transformed by grace. And then he says who these, this message is directed to, the salt and the light. Those who are transformed by grace of the Holy Spirit working in their lives are able to understand these truths and apply. And then Jesus takes it a step further. And he specifically directs his attention to the religious teachers of his day. The scribes, the Pharisees, those who wanted to make God's law a burden around the necks of everyone. They wanted to be self-righteous. They wanted to trust in their own abilities and their own actions. And Jesus uh, not only challenged them, but challenged his followers. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, you, will, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but I think it's important to continue that, that conversation of the law's purpose. And so before we get into our text, we need to talk a little bit about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is, is what the law says on face value. The spirit of the law is what God intends for, the, for those law keepers, for those who love him, uh, for the way that their heart is to be directed toward him. So the letter of the law says you should keep the Sabbath day, keep it holy. The letter of the law says don't work. Don't even untie your, 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 your ox like the Pharisees say because it's all about what you do. But the spirit of the law says God, the creator of the universe, worked for six days and rested for a day. So we follow the pattern of our creator. It also says that God provided Monday through Saturday. We should, we should trust on Sunday that he's going to provide as well. So we not only know the character and pattern of God, we trust in his faithfulness. The letter versus the spirit. The letter of the law said, honor, says, honor your father and mother. The letter says, all right, don't talk back. Do what they say. The spirit says, God is our loving father. And we know that the character of a father is one to love our children. And so when we obey our, our mother and father in the spirit of the law, we do it willfully. We do it joyfully. We do it lovingly because God has given us parents and, and instruction as a good thing. So when we talk about the purpose of the law and the, the, the right letter of it, um, I just wanted to see what kind of laws we have on the books. And you could go far. You don't have to go far. Uh, Florida's got some interesting laws in the books. This has no practical application. I just thought it was funny. So um, when we talk about laws having a specific purpose, I wonder why the people we pay to write our laws came up with some of these. Like in uh, Destin, Florida, it is illegal to sell ice cream in a cemetery. It's also illegal in Destin to give away free ducks. Didn't I don't know. Uh, Pensacola, you must have $10 cash on you at all times if you're walking around downtown. Very useful law, apparently. Um, in Miami, pigs are prohibited in the, in the city limits of Miami. Don't know why. Uh, Key West, chickens are a protected species. You can go to jail for uh, molesting a chicken, apparently. Um, uh, elephants are actually subject to the same parking fees as cars. So if you tie your elephant up, to a parking meter, 
you have to pay the same toll as you would with a car. Good to know. Um, and I, I love this one. I understand how they get to this. But in Tampa, it is actually illegal to eat college, cottage cheese after 6 p.m. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. That's why I don't live in Tampa. One of, one of many reasons. But, you know, the, the, the point of all that, um, the law in, in our minds can normally be negative and it can be something that we are no longer under when we're under grace, but the law is also positive. The law, laws, God's laws, are to direct us to God's character and they are a, a good uh, boundary for us in this world. And it helps to guide and inform our righteousness. And Jesus, in this passage in Matthew, as we continue starting in, in 521, Jesus is furthering that teaching on the law. And he's actually taking it a step further. But I want you to see this morning, when we talk about letter versus spirit. We are, and I want you to hear this clearly. As Christians, we, we, we talked about moralism a few weeks ago. But we are not people of procedures. We are people of principles. We're not people of procedures, but people of principles. It's not what we do, it's why we do it and who we do it for. We have principles that guide our lives, not mechanistic procedures. I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones says that we are to be lovers of righteousness. We are to be spiritual people, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Once we're led by the Spirit, we love God's law, we love the things of God. So before we get to our text in Matthew, I want to set the stage first. If you'd open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want us to see what the purpose of the law is. So let me set the stage for you. After the Israelites rebelled, Moses broke the first set of tablets. Deuteronomy, which literally means second law. Uh, the law is declared again to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so in chapter 6, this is what the Lord tells Moses to tell the people. It's very interesting. Because we think of the law as cold, impersonal, distant. It's not what God intended. And it's not where Christ is coming from when he's teaching about the law here. So I'm actually going to read, um, I'm going to read the, the, the entire chapter. I, I, think it's, I think it's important. I think it sets the stage. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read it slowly. And think about this context as we move into Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and you and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commands, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, your, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into a land which he swore to your, 
to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of goods that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear him. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. And that you may go and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord had promised. When your son asks you in times come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we carefully do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. That is the basis for the law. And there are so many parallels to us today. You see this connection between God teaching the parents and the parents teaching the children. So when your children ask you, why do we need to know these commandments? Why are they important? The Israelites told their children, well, we were slaves in Egypt. But we tell our children we were slaves to sin. The Israelites told their children that God has a promised land for us that he will give to us. We tell our children our inheritance is in heaven. We have a promised land that he has assured us. The Israelites told their children, if you keep these commands, it is our righteousness. We tell our children Christ kept these commands. He is our righteousness. So that is the basis for Christ's teaching. He is the word, the law incarnate. That is the one. He is the one who is teaching on this mount in Palestine at the time. So let's flip back over to Matthew. I want you to have that as our foundation, that the law is something that we enjoy. We enjoy God's word like David. We meditate on it day and night. And this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. People who have a heart for God. People who have a heart for His statues. One of our favorite passages uh, for parents is in Ephesians chapter 6, right? Children, obey your parents, for it is good. A lot of times we forget to keep reading because the prohibition against anger is directed at the parents. You know, Paul says that we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and do not provoke them to anger. 
This connection of heart in, in, in law is always opposed to selfish anger. And we're going to get into that later. And so, uh, parents, as you see this passage in, in, in Deuteronomy, see this as a, a challenge to talk about this with your kids day and night, to lead with this. There's a reason why family worship is important to us. Because the same God who provided for Israel and brought them out of Egypt is the same God who redeemed us by the blood of his son and wants his truth taught to his children. So something else before we get into the message this morning is very, very important I want you to hear. When we talk about anger, don't ever, 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 and this is what the world does, confuse our weak, fallen condition anger being jealous and petty and spiteful with God's righteous anger. We are not capable of the righteous anger that God has against sin. God can have anger and pour out his wrath against the ungodly and yet not sin. God's anger is perfectly just and not sinful. We will talk about the difference between anger and righteous anger. But the world many times try to say, well, I don't like a God who could be angry. My God would never be angry. My God would never be jealous. This is the Oprah fallacy. Um, Oprah grew up in a Christian household and she decided one day that because God is a jealous God and doesn't want other gods, that that wasn't the God for her. So she created her own cult. It's what it is. And she brought other Christians along with her and prominent Christian leaders and said, all ways to Jesus are the same. My God's not jealous. My God's not angry. Do whatever you want. It's not God. Making yourself God. So don't listen to the world they say that, well, I want to pick and choose who God is and who he isn't. God would not be righteous and holy if he wasn't angry at sin. This is not the anger we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray and then we'll get into our text. Heavenly Father, this is one of those topics that we can all relate to, that we all struggle with. That all of us in our hearts have murdered people. All of us in our hearts have wished people dead and wished people harm. It's not an easy thing to say, but it's true. In our fallen state, we can't help it. Let us listen to the words of Jesus as he pierces our heart, as he pierces bone and marrow, and as his, his truth sinks deep into our soul. So we look to our Lord for vengeance. We look to our Lord for justice, that we be beacons of truth and love and mercy here on earth as we are called to be and trust that our righteous judge and heavenly father will make all things right one day as he promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said of, the, of to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. 
So we start in verse 21. You've heard this said. We all know this. You shall not murder. Sixth commandment. We're familiar with that. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That part familiar? Where do we find that in the Old Testament? We don't. See, the commandment was, shalt not murder, shalt not kill. But the Pharisees in their, their teaching added, and whosoever murders will be liable to judgment. Not that it wasn't technically true, but they were more concerned with the judgment, the, the will of man over men's actions than the fear of God. They were more motivated by judgment than they were for love for the Lord in his laws. It's very interesting because Jesus doesn't say, Moses told you you shall not kill. Jesus said, you have heard it was said to those of old. So he's talking about these oral traditions that the, the Pharisees have heaped up on themselves and on the people. That rabbinical Judaism has this, um, this quantitative scale of if I do this many sins, I need to do this many actions, and I do these many responses to remit my sins. It's no different than Islam. It's this every bad deed has its good deed equivalent, and I need to do enough to get myself right. Otherwise, I'll be liable to judgment. And so for them, there was a very clear line. They knew the letter of the law very well. I will hate you all day long, but I'm not going to cross this line to kill you, so I have not broken any laws. Remember, these are the people who were so angry at Jesus that they hated him, and that hatred eventually manifested itself into actual murder. But they were more concerned with the wrath of man than the wrath of God. They loved themselves and their own righteousness more than they loved God's laws. But God has always been more concerned with the heart. We saw this in Deuteronomy 6. This has never changed. The spirit and the principle of the law, not the procedure and the letter. But he wants the people who love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength for those who love him and who are transformed by his grace, it's easier to keep these laws because you love God and you love people made in his image. Because when we look at these passages for the next few weeks, it's not primarily about anger or about lust. It's about what the heart desires. The heart that desires what someone else has. The heart that desires someone else. You know, we think uh, we're righteous because we haven't sinned outwardly. God doesn't see how man sees. He sees the heart. He sees our desires and our motivations. The Pharisees taught that the line that they shouldn't cross was the deed. Jesus is saying that when you cross the line of desire, you've crossed that line. Very, very different between this outward superficial religion that the Jews had created for themselves and people with transformed hearts. That Jesus was conforming into his image. So in the first verse, he says, you have, it, you have heard it said. But in the second verse, he says, but I say to you. you. Realize what he's doing here? The first verse is a declaration of law. Jesus is saying, but I say to you. Jesus is speaking as God here. He's speaking as the lawgiver himself. But I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say. There's this transition between what man says, and what is the unchanging will of God. But I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, a little disappointed with the ESV, they took out this word raka, that most of you grew up in most traditions, you've heard the word raka. It's a it's an Aramaic word that means you worthless person. It's an abusive term that basically says you have no value. Why are you still living? So Jesus uses an, an Aramaic example. And then he goes on to, to use a, a Greek word that says you fool. It's a vitriolic expression. It's this anger poured out at, at someone. You know, it's interesting that Jesus uses an Aramaic example, so the, the, the personal example, and the more universal Greek example. Uh, we all know people who curse in other languages as if it doesn't count. You know, like, like who curse in whatever language that you're, you're most comfortable with. Well, I, they don't understand me, so it doesn't count. Jesus recognizes no matter what language you curse someone in, no matter what language you are tearing them, them down in, it's the condition of the heart. You know, so when we think about this, why do people anger us? Why do we get angry at people? Why do we lash out at people? You ever sit back and take an account in yourself? What is this feeling? What is this urge within me to want to lash out at someone? Because we all do it. Um, those of you who don't know me, you're kind of new. Uh, you look in the bulletin and you're like, how could there be this many vowels in someone's name? Um, if you guessed, my, my last name is, is Italian, um, and Italians are passionate about two things. It's very clear, you may not know this. First thing is food, and the second thing is whatever they're talking about at the moment. That's what they're most passionate about. <laughs> and, and so, um, anger comes very, very naturally. That's our kind of default setting, uh, where if something doesn't make sense, if someone doesn't agree with you, we still love you, but anger comes very quickly. If there was an Italian love language and it wasn't sauce, it would be anger. Um, and so I know that very, very well. There are a lot of um, BC before Christ holes in the wall that, that are results of my anger. I know it's hard to believe now, but I'm probably a better person to talk about anger than uh, Justin. I've met him. He's probably too nice to have this, this message. Uh, my mom loves to tell a story. There's a, there's a dent in my refrigerator because I lost a card game. Um, you got to swing pretty hard to hit a dent in a refrigerator, and yeah, I broke a knuckle. Um, that anger comes way too naturally for me, and there's probably a couple after Christ outbursts too, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on those. I'm trying. Um, and so, but this anger, you know, this anger that comes so naturally to a lot of us, this anger is completely self-centered. It is an emotion driven by what other people do to us. It is completely selfish and prideful and said, look, what you did to me. How dare you do this to me? It's this anger of, I need to be vindicated. You have wronged me. This anger thinks about ourself first. One of our favorite um, comedians, also an Italian guy who understands anger, um, he gives this perfect picture of when this anger manifests itself. Uh, and everyone can relate to this. You know, especially in Florida, if you've gotten behind a tourist or a snowbird and they're going 15 miles under the speed limit and you're okay for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, a minute or two in and you can't get around them and you're building up this anger inside yourself of all the things that you wish you could say to them if they would be bold enough to roll down the window. 
And then the lane opens up and you come beside him. And ladies, you may not understand this, but guys understand this very well. Like, I have to look over and see who's driving that way. Like, I have to lock eyes with this, this person who's holding up my day. And then you get this look on your face, like, look what you did to me. You, you, you lock eyes with them and you, you want them to know that these past five minutes of my life have been miserable and it's all your fault. And I want you to be miserable too. That selfish anger. Look what you did to me. Selfish anger says, I want to kill whatever you find joy in. You were having fun on your little Sunday drive. I want to to stop that right now. I want you to be as miserable as I am. That is a selfish anger. Some ladies are with me too. That's fine. We we, We can all repent together. But this passage is not talking about righteous anger. We're not talking about the anger that God has towards sin. And we need to clarify that because there is a righteous anger. When Jesus was angry and overturned the tables in the temple, that was a righteous anger. It is okay to be angry at sin. And actually, the Bible tells us to hate sin. If you would turn with me to Psalm 97. We don't like to throw that word around. What? Christians can't hate. God doesn't hate. God also isn't jealous or angry either, apparently, compared to the world. There are things that, that, that God hates. He does not love sin. He does not want us to love sin. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Psalm 97, verses 10 through 12. Psalm 97, verses 10 through 12. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and the joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Righteous anger is angry at sin that offends God. It's anger, angry at blasphemy toward God. It's angry at oppression toward God's people. It is not angry to the point of sin and hatred of the person wishing them dead, but it is angry toward the things of God. We are excited. We love God's law so much that it makes us angry when people break it and people blaspheme it. But it is so important that we remember that God's wrath is righteous and we are not capable of righteous wrath. And we are not the executioners of God's righteous wrath. Justice, vengeance is of the Lord. We can can love and we can speak into the injustices of this world. We can speak against blasphemies against God's name. We can declare his righteous truth. But we are not to try to bring that judgment in ourselves. Because God is the righteous one. And this even continues into the New Testament. Ephesians uh, 4.26 says, Be angry, you know this, and what? And do not sin. This is quoted from Psalm 4.4, verbatim. Be angry and do not sin. I love what Psalm 4 says. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Be angry and do not sin. When you get angry, be silent. Silent, ponder by yourself, come before the Lord is the equivalent of be still and know that I am God. 
trust in the Lord no matter what happens around you. You can be angry, but do not let that anger breed into sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger or otherwise. Or essentially, do not let one day go by where you are not trusting in the Lord. Because we cannot commit our heart to the Lord and honor him while it is divided with anger or malice or wrath for someone else. Especially a brother. And that's what Jesus is getting into back in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 23, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your, your gift. So Jesus, as an application, says examine yourself. First he said, don't lash out at people. Be watchful in your, your anger and then examine yourself. Don't even come before the altar to give a gift unless you've examined yourself first. I mean, this is why we do confession and repentance before communion. We want our hearts to be dedicated uh, to the Lord. And so uh, there's, a, there's a, a few quotes that I'm going to have that are going to be up on the screen. Um, some of you history nerds like me will, will love this. And uh, a lot of you guys I don't know yet, you will know that... Uh, I love to read and I love to read books up, or excuse me, bring books up here and, and, and read to you. This is a fantastic series that came out not too long ago. It's called The Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. Okay, why does this matter to me? Well, because the early church fathers from the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth centuries, so 15 to 1900 years ago, um, are talking on the same scriptures that we're talking about today. Because the world around us tells us, well, Christianity has evolved, is made up. Uh, you, we don't, we don't know what the, the, the early church actually thought. Well, yeah, actually we do. We have full commentaries on the New Testament from people in the second century. So I want to read a few of those today. It's so fascinating to me that, that pastors, we're going to read one from the third, one from the fourth, and one from the, the, the fifth century, that commentating on this very passage draw some of the same applications we would. And that humans have always struggled with the same sins, and that the church has always tried to point them to Christ and put it in perspective in our own lives. So this, this first quote is from uh, Origen. He's uh, the, the early 3rd century, um, so the early 200s. Origen says, To give assent to sin is already a completed evil, even if someone does not actually commit the deed. And by this saying, our Savior, hurling us away uh, from the cause of sins, endeavors to cut sin off completely. For when this intention is not present in our souls, neither shall the, shall the action accompany it. I thought that was fascinating. For when this intention is not present in our souls, neither shall the action accompany it. That idea of intention connects to action. This next quote uh, comes from Jerome. He wrote the, the, the Latin Vulgate translation that actually was, was around for a little over a thousand years. Um, and in, uh, in uh, his commentary on Matthew, he says, um, he, meaning Jesus, did not say if you have anything against your, your brother, but if your brother has anything against you. So that a greater need for reconciliation is opposed, imposed on you. As long as we are unable to make peace with our brother, I do not know whether we may offer our gifts to God. This next quote is from Augustine, not Augustine, that's a grass. Augustine's a theologian. Um, 
Augustine says, and he's uh, early 5th century. In the spiritual sense, therefore, we may understand faith as an altar in the inner temple of God, to which the visible altar sy- symbolically points. Whether we, whatever gift we offer to God, whether it be prophecy or doctrine or prayer or a hymn or a psalm or whatever other spiritual gifts of this kind may come to mind, cannot be acceptable to God unless it is held up by sincere faith and firmly and immovably fixed on it so that our words may be pure and undefiled. So Jesus is talking about the offerings in the temple. We don't, we don't go before a temple, but everything we do is an act of worship. And we can't come before God if we hate our brother. If our brother has something against us, it is more important to be reconciled with our, our brother than to do some outward religious act with hate in our heart. Um, you know, this is an amazing illustration for anyone who's ever been married. You know, because you know how it is to live with someone day after day, and you will argue about everything. You argue about what you eat for dinner, how you brush your teeth, when you brush your teeth. Um, and if you don't, I ah, forget you guys. But um, my wife and I argue about silly things. And as a man, it is really hard to say I'm sorry even when I don't really think I was wrong. But I know that's what the Lord has called me to do. And I'm thankful that my wife and I have a relationship where it won't take too long before one of us is the first one to apologize. It is very, very difficult at first. But it gets easier and it gets easier. And there is a joy in that reconciliation. That I love you more than I love the argument. I love you more than I love being right. And that is a great example in marriage. It's also a great example in any relationship that, that we have. Jesus tells us to examine ourselves, And like Jerome said, that it is on us first to reconcile. It's interesting that there's no mention of what that person should do. Well, let's see Jesus' next example here. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have the last penny paid. So examine yourself. Do not delay. If you have something against someone else, if they have a charge against you, do it quickly. Examine yourself, reconcile, and do that quickly. Don't be, mo- don't be motivated by pride or, or self-righteousness. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Don't uh, have an unresolved issue with someone. I, I love what um, A.T. Robinson, this one Bible commentator, says. It's so spot on, and I'm going I'm to repeat it so I make sure you get this. Compromise is better than prison where no principle is involved, but only personal interest. One more time. Compromise is better than prison where there is no principle involved, only personal interest. Remember, we are people of principle, not... Anyone remember? Procedure. So if there's not a biblical conviction, if there's not a principle involved, it is better to compromise and go to prison. He's not talking about unprincipled situations here, but only personal interest. That's what pride is. We're only concerned about ourselves because there won't be peace with God if there's not peace with your brother. So Jesus is saying in these two examples, we are to examine ourselves, reconcile and do it quickly. Don't wait. Don't hold on to anger. Don't let that, that, that fuming feeling turn into an action. 
It's, it's simply what he's saying here. So before we close, I have a couple observations um, that I think is really interesting. That like I mentioned a moment ago, there is nothing said here about the other person. Nothing. Not a word. We are not responsible for what someone else does. We are not responsible to how they respond to us. We make our effort to reconcile. We make our effort to pay our debts and, and um, dissolve these, these situations. But it's only how we respond. It's interesting. And let's be honest. You know, sometimes it really bothers me how unsatisfying Jesus can be. I know it sounds like, like blasphemy, but... It is unsatisfying because we say, I have a right to be angry with this person. I mean, look what they did to me. Can't I get even? This person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. What were Jesus' last words on the cross? They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Wow. Wow. That is unsatisfying. As selfish, (laughs) broken, fallen creatures, it is unsatisfying to say, I forgive you no matter what you do. Because here's the truth. You don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be forgiven. You deserve God's anger. I deserve God's anger. Righteous anger at sin. But have you been transformed by His grace? Has your heart of stone become a heart of flesh? Have you been forgiven? Has the Savior of the world taken your sins upon the cross and forgiven you all? If He has, we have been forgiven much. So we can forgive much. And the anger that we don't want God to have toward us, we can remember not to direct at others. So as we conclude this morning, we learn that anger is not a matter of the letter, that murder is not a matter of the letter, but what? Not a matter of the letter of the law, but the spirit. That murder is not just pulling the trigger. Murder is a heart that is so angry that it wishes that person dead. So how do we kill anger? Uh, the Puritans, I love quoting the Puritans, they had this, this saying called the, the, the mortification of, of sin. They wrote books and volumes on it of how we attack sin. The first thing is we seek God more than we seek vindication. We seek righteousness. We seek the things of the Lord more than our own pride. We have a heart that loves the Lord that loves his commandments, that loves people made in his image. If you are seeking God more than you're seeking your own pride, if you love his law, if you love his commandments, and you love people made in his image, it makes it a lot easier to not get caught up in anger. The next thing Jesus tells us to do here is examine ourselves. So once we focus our eyes firmly on the Lord and his law, we look at our own lives. Where is the pride in my life? Who are the people who I can't forgive? Who are the people I am so angry at that I wish them miserable and I wish them dead? Redirect those to the Lord. Confess our sins. Trust 
in the work that Christ has done in our own lives. Turn to the lawgiver. Turn to the righteous one. Turn to the one who will make all things right one day. Jesus did not come to this earth to make things easy now. He came to this earth to redeem a people for himself. To, turn, to bring dead people to life. To take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Hearts that love the Lord their God with all their soul, their mind, and their strength. And they love their neighbor as themselves. And in that, we are light to the world. There's no such thing as an angry light to the world. We are salt of the earth. We bring flavor and preservation to this earth. There is no preservation if we are too angry to declare the gospel to a world who desperately needs it. Let's pray. I just want to take a moment and just to rest in this. Lord, let this sink deep within our hearts. Lord, that you would convict us, that you would just cripple us with our own pride, that we would just be broken over a heart that is more focused on ourselves than it is on you. Lord, we don't love your laws. We love our own vindication. We don't want to honor you before other things. We want to live for our comfort and our benefit. Lord, that is not what you call your people too. Lord, in our anger, keep us from sin. In our pain and our hurt, keep us from anger. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We recognize that every good thing comes from you and we can trust you to judge the living and the dead. We can trust you that righteousness will be upheld. We can trust you that vengeance will be yours and that one day all of our enemies, just like the enemies of Israel, they will be cast down and there is a land for us that is promised with barns we didn't build, with plants we didn't, with crops we didn't plant because you are the giver of every good gift. And Lord, we love you and we, and we praise you We turn our hearts to you and away from the things of this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.